Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. My name is Benjamin Kitchings, and as always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. Okay, this has a story. This podcast came about because I wanted to do a podcast from somebody in the middle Atlantic either in Pennsylvania or near Pennsylvania. So I put an ad on the Delaware Reddit because Delaware shares a border with Pennsylvania. And I got some feedback. And I didn't say what I wanted to talk about. I just said I was a podcaster and that I'd like to talk to somebody from Delaware. And sure enough, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Hewn answered the call. Now, this is so awesome because I have been wanting to interview a medical person for basically as long as I've been doing interviews for this podcast about COVID. And Lieutenant Colonel Rob Hewn is with the Delaware National Guard, and he's also been in civilian and military medical practice for over 30 for almost 30 years in the military and presumably longer than that in civilian life which is amazing anyway so he had some pretty uh interesting insights into the disease of COVID-19 and he's he's gonna kind of you know shed some light on a few things for some people I'm sure anyway uh give this guy a listen and uh as always, uh, thank you very, very much for choosing to listen to my podcast. Again, uh, you guys are great. Thank you, and uh, I'll see you guys later. All right, take it away. Hello, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, and this is the History Voyager. I'm here with Rob, who is a flight nurse. Why don't you uh, talk a little bit about your uh, 2020 first? Yeah, 2020 was a really interesting year for me. Uh, I was living down in Virginia and just got back from a deployment overseas with the Air Force and was um, asked to come up and work with the Delaware Air National Guard to help uh, mitigate their COVID response or, you know, the hospitals were kind of getting overloaded, uh, at the beginning. And, um, I saw it as a good opportunity to give back to the state that I am actually a member of the air guard at, and, uh, came up here and I haven't left. I liked Delaware so much. I decided to stay. And, uh, after all my deployments were over, I ended up going back to Virginia, packing up my house and moving up here. Okay. Um, how is the, uh, the COVID response in Delaware going? So it's been a phased response. Um, a lot of the hospitals did a really good job of managing that initial influx. Um, the businesses uh, kind of... <sighs> had a little bit of heartache and difficulty with the initial restrictions. Uh, but I think the infection rate within the state is actually pretty good now. Uh, I think we got lax right there at the end of the first wave when they really started reopening things. Uh, so we saw an increase in COVID patients down in the beach communities, the, the, the towns that had a little bit higher tourism than other towns. Uh, so it had us slide backwards a little bit, but with the aggressive testing that the state is doing, uh, we're in the process of a, an initial immunization rollout. Uh, I think the governor or the Delaware emergency site just posted their uh, phased immunization schedule on their website today. And uh, it seems to be going pretty well. There's uh, already quite a few people that have been given their first dose. Of the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. 
it's cool that that's that that's happening so fast. I mean, I I actually interviewed a man recently who he predicted this. He was a he was a journalist who covered um, computers for years and years, and he predicted that it would be kind of quick. Did does the quick rollout surprise you at all? So the yes and no. Uh, Technology is advancing so fast. Artificial intelligence is playing a huge part in healthcare. Uh, they're able to run scenarios much, much faster and information and data through systems much faster than we could 10, 20, and 30 years ago when other vaccines have been developed. Uh, this technology that they're using, that, that modified RNA strand, isn't really new technology, but it's new for vaccine delivery. So it surprised me that it made it through as quickly as it did, but I'm confident in the fact that it is going to be safe and that the, uh, the that our current level of healthcare and technology interaction is what has made it so easily and quickly able to be rolled out. That's cool. Uh, can you talk about some of the challenges with uh, the COVID patients that you might have seen? Absolutely. One of the biggest challenges, Ben, is uh, people wanting to find a way around a quarantine or a restriction. Uh, I did a lot of urgent care work through this once I stopped supporting the hospital directly and it's point of care testing, you know, te getting them swab tested that day or swabbed and sent out for their, uh, for their later results and telling somebody that they're positive with, with coronavirus and that they're going to need to implement, you know, greater restrictions are going to need to quarantine, or even isolate for the uh, for the lower risk people uh, was extremely hard for some of them to hear. Uh, it it you're, they felt like you were taking away their their true freedom. You're trying to restrict their movement. They're they were very angry. They were very upset. Uh, some people were extremely distraught. They thought this was going to be the end of their life, even if it was uh, a minor presentation of the illness as opposed to one of the more complex ones. And that's the most complicated and difficult part of managing a, a COVID patient today is the severity of the illness ranges from I'm asymptomatic, I have n no real symptoms at all, but I'm walking around with this disease and other people who are on ventilators and dependent on life support because it's affected them so greatly. So it's that wide variety and the broad spectrum of symptoms for presentation. It's Maybe I have a fever, maybe I have a cough, maybe I've been sneezing, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, loss of taste, loss of smell. Uh, there's so many possible symptoms and presentations that it makes it very difficult to, to, to narrow it down like, and, and to find an effective treatment as well. Right, right. Have you had um, anybody that initially turned up as asymptomatic and then they became very symptomatic? Yes, I have seen people's pro symptoms progress very rapidly. Uh, people have come in, they've, they've had their initial exposure. Uh, it's a typical patient would come in and say, oh, my coworker tested positive for, for coronavirus and my work wants me to get tested. They'll come back as a, a negative for a rapid test because the antigen hasn't grown in their body yet because um, it just hasn't had time to register on the rapid test. So we'll do the send out test, which looks at their, um, at their, it's kind of an RNA, kind of the same thing that we're doing for the immunization is what 
the testing of the send out test looks for. Uh, a lot of times these people will come in four or five days later. Absolutely. They're positive. They have a high fever. They're Breathing is completely changed. Uh, it started off as something very, very small, and you, you try to treat it symptomatically with some over-the-counter medications, some general support, just like you would for a for a cold or a, or a mild flu. Uh, and then these people on day five, six, or seven uh, take a serious downturn, and they end up going into the emergency department and end up staying in the ICU for a couple days. Uh, I had one guy who was in the ICU for 93 days and he initially started off with uh, very mild symptoms. Wow. Uh, did he pull through or do you know? Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's one of the things that we try to really maintain in healthcare is that, um, uh, the HIPAA protections, the client-patient uh, confidentiality. Uh, if I don't have a need to know what's going on with that patient that day as a provider, it's it's almost irresponsible of me to, to even call the hospital to see how they're doing. I'm not a friend of them. I'm not a family member. Um, it, it's, it's no longer my patient. So I, I don't really check and follow up. Um, I do find out through updates, um, through my computer system, through my EHR, if I'm the one that sent them to the hospital, I get updates that their follow-on visit from my referral to the hospital is complete. But I don't get an update as to the outcome of that complete visit. Okay. Uh, can you tell me, please, how, at least as far as in your slice of life, how treating COVID has evolved in 19 and now all the way through January 2021? Yeah, uh, it's it's very different. Um, it's... As this this novel virus right is 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 propagating throughout the entire world, there's scientists studying it and the treatments everywhere, and every little snippet of population is getting studies done on them, and and scientists and medical researchers are publishing their findings, and we're trying to find that magic bullet. We're trying to find that one thing that's really going to help these people. And it started off as, well, this is, uh, there, there's nothing that we can do except treat them symptomatically. Or we can give them a small a small dose of antibiotics. And then it moved to, well, the antibiotics aren't shown to work. And they started talking about some of those other medications that uh, weren't really find, found to have a big benefit. You know, like the uh, remdesivir and um, uh, some of the higher dose of steroids and things like that. It, it, it just has been... Uh, a lot of treating of symptoms until we start narrowing it down. Uh, one of the other, th I'm, I'm in addition to being a flight nurse, I'm a nurse practitioner as well. And one of the things I found has really had a huge benefit is uh, holistic support. In addition to treating those symptoms, so you know, like we would for bronchitis. If you have bronchitis, we'll give you some medication, maybe a short course of steroids to help decrease the inflammation of your lungs, to help you breathe a little bit better, maybe an inhaler to kind of help open those things up to, you know, help facilitate air exchange, but vitamin D and zinc and, you know, fluid and in increasing fluid intake and the, the, things that your parents have been telling you for years will help with a cold are really found to help with coronavirus as well. Um, it, it's really uh, important 
in the in the medical community today if you're on the front lines even if you're seeing patients in a home office or a clinic somewhere to read one coronavirus research article a week and look at the changes in healthcare it's changed so rapidly over the course of 2020 to where if you're very very sick and you're in a a, a major hospital like a major teaching hospital like john hopkins or something you're gonna get treatment that's not available to other people but those treatment modalities are the ones that are they're the ones doing the research and they're the ones pushing it down to everybody else so we're, we're still trying to figure it out and try to see if there's a a, a, a good middle ground of hey let's do a little bit of mix of this and that but um, I've really found that for your typical coronavirus patient that doesn't need hospitalized, additional vitamin support, additional nutrition, additional um, hydration, maintain those really good sanitary boundaries, wash your hands, use the hand sanitizer, wear your mask, you know, prevent that transmission of droplets into the air um it, it is the best thing for the population that i see and uh research is now catching up with that and and you'll start seeing articles that are supporting that vitamin d deficiencies are are very uh, are linked to more severe cases of coronavirus you know, zinc uh, deficiencies are linked to extended coronavirus um, uh, infections. So, yeah, just really zinc deficiency is um, uh, zinc deficiencies are linked to extended coronavirus infections. So, zinc, vitamin D, wash your hands really well, wear your mask, and uh, if you have a fever, Tylenol. And, and and increase that amount of hydration drink water drink tea um herbal anti-inflammatories actually are really important as well one of the things that i love to give is um a, a well it's a recommendation i can't write a prescription for it but it's, it's turmeric it's a herbal anti-inflammatory as long as you don't have any bleeding disorders you can take all of these medications add them to your daily vitamins and um it's been shown to really shorten the course of coronavirus to weaken the severity of the infection and to help improve recovery rates okay that's that's excellent news tell me please can you can you tell me if your thinking on coronavirus evolved um over the time from say well okay let's back up when did you become aware of coronavirus first of all uh, really when everybody else did in January. Um, January of when, 19. Uh, or January of 20. January of yeah, 20. Yeah, January of 20. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, January 20, when it really started hitting the media, is when we started becoming really familiar with it. Uh, I, was, I was deployed at the time. So I wasn't working in the nurse practitioner capacity, so I wasn't really reading a lot of research related to it. Um, so when it really hit the media, I was like, this is going to be something that I need to look into more. And I'll admit that I thought the same thing that a lot of people did, that this is a just a different version of the flu. This is going to be a more severe uh, a more severe cold, but as long as we do the things that we should do to, if we're sick, stay home, don't cough and sneeze on people, wash your hands, um, that it should be okay. And as the science evolved, as they started realizing that, hey, this is transmitted not just through droplets, but it could be airborne as well. Uh, there's all these different types of presentation. That is when I really started changing my mental uh, focus on coronavirus and said, okay, I really need to look deeper into this. And this is not 
a cold. This is not just the flu. This is something very different and needs to be treated and, and mitigated differently than just your average everyday virus. Well, thank you for, for your honesty there. Um, To me, the the most horrifying thing to me is that it affects or it can affect the brain. I've I've read that it can cause brain damage and things like that. Um, Like, so in your capacity as a, as a healthcare provider, uh, what's, what's some of the more, what, what, what are some of the scenes that stick to you? without using any names or anything like that? So one of my, one of my close friends in Virginia uh, had a pretty severe case of, um, of coronavirus and uh, happened to be just in healthcare as well. But the fact that they didn't know what the long-term effects were at the time so in order to clear him to go back to work, it involved a lot of extra screening, echocardiograms, CAT scans, blood cultures, you know, tests that we wouldn't do for somebody who just got over the case of the flu. You get done with the flu, you're, you're, you, you go back to work. But in order to clear him to come back to his, to his full capacity and his job, he had to go through a lot of additional screening. And not once, but twice, he had to get the initial stuff done. And then they wanted to do it again a few months later to see if there's been any residual effects or any additional changes and that's uh, i am really in in all honesty that's that's scary that there's a virus out there that can affect so many systems so many different ways that in order to make sure that there's that we're truly recovering from it that they have to run this many tests on somebody yeah, that's. I, mean, I, guess, I guess that can get expensive too, because because of uh, our our medical situation in this country. Um, let me. Okay, I, I'm so glad I looked into you on Reddit. I really, I really am. Um, what would you say as you look across the country on the news? What's your sentiment as you, what are you thinking as you watch the news and you see how the, the different states or the different people are reacting to COVID? I think, I think Delaware is actually doing a better job than a lot of places. And I, I have friends all over the country. I've traveled everywhere, lived in each region. I've born in Pennsylvania. I've lived here on the East Coast. I've lived in Texas, Arizona, California, and I have. I, I it pains me to see that not every area is taking it as seriously as they should. Now, I'm not saying everybody should be on the same restrictions because living in rural Texas is very different. You know, our friends down South will tell us that living in, in, in Delmarva is very different than living in Newcastle. And you're right. You don't have people piled on top of each other. And maybe the restrictions should be a little bit different there, but the restrictions shouldn't be completely eliminated people everywhere should be at least wearing a mask and have access to you know proper hygiene hand sanitizer and maintaining social distancing when i see people at parties in new york and las vegas and they're just tearing their mask off and people at new year's eve parties and concerts because of the wide range of symptoms and the severity of, of illness, it varies so much. You have a very real possibility of taking your tiny muscle aches or maybe light fever or maybe nothing at all home to your 
grandmother and that's the trigger that's going to kill maybe not your grandmother but somebody else's grandmother or somebody else's father or brother uh a, a good friend of mine in texas was two years older than me was in the military for th almost 30 years retired became a police officer and was extremely healthy and and, and died because of an asymptomatic contact that gave him a bad case of, the, of, of, of COVID. And I just, it, it's very difficult to see the news and to see how different regions of the country are taking this differently. Like I, I get that every state's different. I get that every community's wow. different, uh, but there has to be a, a baseline. There has to be something that we all do together to help mitigate the spread of the virus. And that's, you know, it, to me, from what I've read, from what I've looked at, to me, it's good hygiene, good nutrition, vitamin intake and, and social distancing. And if we did that at the very, very beginning as a nation, this resurgence would not have been this bad. That, that's probably fair. Um, so, have you seen? Okay, in your in your town in Delaware, have you seen sort of an evolution of how people take COVID, or was it always kind of like people, at least in your slice of the world, thought it was serious? No. Um, I it's gone it's it's gone kind of like a bell curve i think it started off as uh people did not really take it very seriously and then as it kind of ramped up you know i i saw the hour two hour long lines of people waiting to get tested and as the number of infections started to decrease and as things started opening back up people started getting a little more lax about it. And then as time went on, as we make it through the entire rest of the year, I, I just saw that some people in even face-to-face -face conversation would just tell me that they're over this, they're done with it. They, 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 they just want to get on with their lives. And because we've done a pretty decent job here in Delaware, it's sometimes harder to get the point across, hey, there's still a major pandemic around, and we border states with very high populations of people, and we should be on our toes to prevent a massive resurgence here. And it, it, it's sometimes hard to get that through. So I, we're on the we're on the downside of that bell curve where it started off low. People became really hyper aware of it. And now we're we're back to where people are, I mean, for lack of a better word, over it. And I, I, I think we just need to do a little bit better job for a little bit longer and it'll help. Are, are you in a hospital? Do you work in a hospital, or, or where exactly do you work? So, I uh, uh, right now I am uh, activated with the Air National Guard, so I am working uh, for the Air National Guard up in Newcastle. I typically work at freestanding urgent cares um, in the emergency department. And in some cases, I do uh, house calls as an independent provider. Okay, so with the Air National Guard, um, I guess what I'm asking, and again, this is out of complete ignorance. So the Air National Guard, do they have you in some kind of medical situation, or are you are you on a plane? How does this how does how does this work? So there's lots of different responses right now that the Air National Guard is supporting for uh, for COVID nationwide. Uh, in 2020, in the state of Delaware, 
the Delaware National Guard and the Delaware Army Guard supported um, COVID response at hospitals. So we actually went to the civilian hospitals and assisted them with their manning uh, and staffing. We also assisted the uh, Delaware Emergency Management Office with testing at the testing sites. Uh, some of us continued working with the, with the guard and were used in an administrative capacity to help develop policy and procedures for additional support and pandemic response should the National Guard be needed uh, to assist medically. At that same time, the Air National Guard, Air Force, and Air Force Reserve, which are the primary transporters of medical patients in the military system, uh, have stood up COVID response units around the world and have those staffed. And they're staffed with uh, specialized medical transport devices that we can put into an airplane and move COVID patients all over the world should we need to in, in, a, in a mass casualty type situation. So we still have people out supporting those initiatives. And then we also have what are called, um, they're, they're basically our quarantine sites. When people are getting ready to go deploy overseas, uh, we send them to the quarantine sites and they're managed by um uh, their symptoms are monitored, their, you know, interactions are monitored, they're watched for, you know, the 14-day period, tested while they're there to make sure that they're not uh, actively infected with coronavirus, and if they're cleared, then they're able to deploy. So we're attacking this from multiple fronts. Uh, so yes, we're in hospitals, yes, we're on airplanes, yes, we're on the ground, um, right now, I am uh, getting ready to go to one of those uh, quarantine sites uh, to work there to m assist the rest of the Air Force to make sure that we're not sending infected service members overseas. Okay, that's, that's actually a good thing. Uh, that was one of the ways the Spanish flu got spread around. Um, let me ask you this, though. Uh, put your thinking cap on for me for a second. How long do you think we're going to be dealing with COVID? It's a great question, and I get it asked all the time. Uh, <laughs> dealing with COVID is going to be something that we're doing for a long time. Um, I do think that we'll get a handle on it through immunization, herd immunity, once we hit a certain critical mass of immunizations. Uh, but I think that it's going to be something that's, that's around just because of the nature of the organism, because of the way it's spread, I unfortunately, I kind of agree with Dr. Fauci on this and think that it, it's going to be seasonal. It's something that is just going to come back. It's not going to come back as bad once we really start figuring out the right way to attack it. Um, but it's... It's something that's going going to be around for a while, and I think we're going to be dealing with it in our current capacity with the mask while we're shopping, with the you know uh, limited capacity in in certain locations uh, for at least the rest of spring and possibly into summer, and depending on what we do in the summer is when we may start seeing real, real restrictions reduced. I mean, we'll still open up restaurants and we'll still bring more people into the stores and things like that. And, you know, have the economy reopened, but I, I don't think that we're going to live a life mask free, if you will, 
until we see what happens when summertime happens and everybody wants to get together and have a good time. I mean, so like, okay, was there an evolution between, I mean, evolution is not the right word. Did you see maybe some of the partisanness as far as the non-mask wearing versus the mask wearing? Because a lot of people say that. And does that still go on where you are? Or um, is everybody pretty much wearing a mask? So we're mandated to wear them on, on the base. We, ju- we just can't be on base without the mask. So in my... in on the occupation side in, in my business side, yes, everybody wears a mask and, um, they have to, however, there are the still complaints about the mask. And I'm, I don't, I don't want to politicize that, but I do see uh, exactly what you're talking about. And, and I do believe that there is a, a, a partisan response for, I mean, those, you know, to use your words to whether or not they believe the mask is effective and whether or not they believe that they should be wearing one. Uh, there's definitely, a, um, uh, now is it solely based on that? No. Absolutely not. There, there are people that are, you know, on the on the liberal side who refuse to wear a mask, and there are people that are conservative that uh, that's what they want to do. They want to keep everybody, you know, they want to keep themselves safe and and their family safe, so they wear their mask. Uh, but but yes, it it really depends on the community and if if the community and i mean your family your friends your online circle your town whatever the 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 attitude of your leaders are or the people that you consider a leader um, yeah, because it could it could be uh, uh, somebody in the media who you you, you know consider a, a community leader. Whatever those attitudes are that you choose to follow are what have been really dictating mask adherence and acceptance from what I've seen. Yeah, I didn't want to put you on the spot there. I, I wasn't trying to play gotcha. I'm I'm also doing this for posterity so i i didn't really want you to feel uncomfortable um oh no but, um, i mean i wouldn't agree to this if uh if i didn't expect you to ask whatever you wanted to ask and i i i pride myself on openness and honesty and i will i will talk as much as i can on a subject that i have any knowledge on but if i if i don't i'll say you know i don't know or i haven't seen that but yeah that in in this instance that that's that's my experience that's what i've seen okay well well thank you so much for for answering that question um do you okay let me ask you this because i've been dying to ask somebody like you this question do you see a day when COVID-19 is not a political issue at all? Like the way typhoid, you know what I'm saying? Like how typhoid is not a political issue, right? Or right. some other kind of disease. Do you, do you see, or, or is the legacy of COVID and the legacy of politics always going to be inter- intertwined? So to say, uh, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think that this will fall out of political favor. Uh, unfortunately, politics uh, is driven by whatever hot button item it is. You know, uh, even even Ebola, uh, you know, a few years ago became political in nature. Uh, I don't see coronavirus maintaining that punch for a long period of time. Will it be for the next year or two? 
Absolutely. While we're doing vaccine rollouts, while we're talking about decreased more, you know, mortality and morbidity because people are healthier, and absolutely, for the next election or so, coronavirus is going to have some uh, a residual effect on politics because governors are going to use it to talk about how they did a great job and they're trying to go for re-election. Senators are going to use it when they talk about putting forward bills when they're going for re-election, but that's only going to last for probably one election cycle. After that, they're going to have to give us more of that. What have you done for me now? Things as opposed to, you know, Hey, you remember that one time during that pandemic that, that it's going to go away politically, not, you know, epidemiologically, but politically it's going to fall out of favor and it's, it's not going to have the same impact that it does now. Well, I, I certainly hope you're right. And I, I mean, I, I think eventually it, it's going to become, non-political or as non-political as it can uh and i i thank you and i thank you for this uh from the bottom of my heart very seriously i had no idea when i put that out i had no idea i was gonna get somebody like you uh <laughs> thank you so much oh, i appreciate right. that i really enjoyed uh, the opportunity just just real quick uh one more question you you've been a peach but just one more question, if you don't mind. Um, and then you have to stay on the line yeah. while the thing downloads. Uh, what? But you had said earlier, I take that back, maybe two questions. You had said earlier okay. you had alluded to, you had alluded to Ebola. Uh, were you in the medical field during Ebola? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was working. I mean, I've, I've been in the I've been in the military for 27 years and I've been uh, medical for the vast majority of that. But I was also working civilian um, uh, medical at the time. I believe I was in New Mexico and uh, we were in a, a small community hospital, but we were prepping for the possibility of Ebola coming through the southern border with the uh, hazmat response suits, those isolated uh, uh, positive air pressure respirators, having um, uh, small teams for like hazmat response. Yeah, I was absolutely involved in healthcare for Ebola. Okay, for the purposes of, of history, for the purposes of people not yet alive, uh, compare and contrast the U.S. response to Ebola with the U.S. response to COVID-19, at least from your perspective. So I think we're comparing apples and oranges because the Ebola threat while it did reach U.S. soil, it didn't reach U.S. soil in the numbers that we, uh, I don't want to say expected, but it didn't reach U.S. soil in huge numbers. And we did have a good initial preparation and response to Ebola. And that's where we're going to draw the parallel as far as Ebola was concerned, as soon as we identified it, as soon as we identified it could possibly get over here into us. And that, that first person touched down on us soil with Ebola, we rolled out massive, uh, information. Like, uh, we were, starting to question people on what their travel habits were, where they were, what they've done. Had they been to these um, countries, the CDC was very active and very much telling us, hey, all right, it's spread to another country. Now you need to ask, ask if they were in this country as well. Um, and the healthcare institutions as a, um, in general, had a pretty good response. They kind of regionalized their response and that was good where coronavirus, when they first started hitting, they started hitting our soils in a, in a much higher number. So you can't 
run the same play if you have a different offense, you know, using a, using a sports analogy, it, it was a different form of, of, of offense. It was a different attack. Um, they were coming in from all sides and the numbers were way faster. So when we tried to do the Ebola playbook, it just wasn't working. We're, you know, we didn't have the, the equipment to treat every, respiratory patient like we were treating people who we presumed were Ebola positive and we we didn't know what we didn't know and we found out really fast that we were very unprepared as as a as a nation for an illness that's transmitted this way because we ran out of PPE so fast with uh, uh, with coronavirus, but we had so much for Ebola. Like the Ebola room was pristine, and the the antechamber where we would get dressed had equipment, and we would do a couple drills, and you know we trained for it. And it's like, all right, if one comes in, what are you going to do? And we trained for putting it on and taking it off. When when coronavirus hit. And we were scrambling for equipment. We were scrambling for supplies, and we didn't have that that drill down. It wasn't like a regimented training, uh, the, uh, trained response like we had for for Ebola, and that's it. It, it wasn't a failure, just the wrong. Uh, you know, I don't know, to use a military reference, we didn't expect the enemy to come through the way that they came through in the numbers that they came through with. And we weren't prepared and it caught us off guard. It, would it be fair to say, would it be fair to say it was an ambush? Uh, I mean, we, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good word. We weren't expecting it to hit the way that it hit. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an ambush on our healthcare system. Um, and it was, it was a blind side because it's one, it's a new virus. You know, it, it, you know, we didn't know exactly how it was transmitted. Yeah. It was a variant of an existing virus, but it's, it was new in and of itself and we didn't know how to treat it. So we thought we were going to protect ourselves and treat ourselves like we would have done for its previous versions, but it wasn't that, and it did. It it, it ambushed us. It caught us off guard. Okay, um, Lieutenant Colonel, if I could, uh, if I could ask you a question, just in your slice yes. of of treating this plague. Uh, not, I'm not asking you for numbers. I'm just asking you for anecdotal right off the cuff kind of stuff. If you were to look at it, if you were to close your eyes and look at a COVID patient, are they all different ages, uh, all different races? Is it, or is there a pattern you're seeing just in your own slice of it? Coronavirus does not discriminate. It okay. is it is children, it is adults, it is uh, all races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, it is all genders. Um, you know, when I was working in the freestanding urgent care, we were seeing 110 patients a day, and I would say 30 to 40 of those had coronavirus symptoms. And it, it was everyone. And it was people who wore their mask and people who didn't wear their mask. It was people that worked in offices and it was people who worked uh, out you know, in restaurants. It was people who worked in, uh, on the, in the shipyards down in Virginia. I mean, it, it literally, there, I, I did not see a discriminatory disease that any particular race, gender, or ethnicity was more, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, susceptible. Because, you know, because it just, 
I, yeah, I can't close my eyes and see a single type of, as, like, I can't picture a, a typical, this person's going to get coronavirus because everybody can get coronavirus. Okay. okay. I, mean, I was really jonesing for somebody like you to say that, by the way. It's not that I think it discriminates, but, you know, some people do, unfortunately. Um, yeah. What would you, uh, okay, what do you think you've learned about America because of coronavirus? Or maybe not uh, America, maybe, okay, let me, okay, with you, let me drill down further. Let me say just with Delo, what have you learned about your world, the world you inhabit because of coronavirus? Uh, I've I've learned that people's um, uh, patience is is much less than um, uh, people that I grew up around. Yeah, I, I grew up in a in a very patient and understanding environment, but uh, in general, people's patience is is is, is wearing thin, and people's um, not really anger, but people's attitudes escalate when they feel like they're losing any bit of control in any aspect of their life. And it may be the only bit of control that they feel that they have left. And, you know, that's the, that's the variable here. You know, people's, lives can be can be very fragile they can be uh teetering on the verge of a of, of an emotional breakdown and the one thing that they have control of is i can get up and i can go to the store and i can buy my eggs and milk and now you're telling me that I have to wait in a line to get in the store. I got to wear a mask to get in the store. And I, 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 you know, this is, this is not what I need right now. And, and, and you can see people's attitudes escalate. So it just in the one thing that I've seen and, and, and really learned it and have grown to appreciate is that we can't, what works for me doesn't work for you necessarily and we should have a little bit more respect and understanding for our fellow Americans and fellow Delawareans because this has been hard on all of us this has been hard on their families this has been hard on our communities our schools our businesses and while we're communicating one message of wear your mask, wash your hands, we're only opening businesses so many days, we may not be communicating it effectively to everybody. So let's have some patience and understanding and maybe deliver our message differently so those people can also understand why we're doing this because that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people's patience wear thin and I'm seeing people's attitudes really change. And people who I previously thought were extremely mm. kind and rational have been less so. And a lot of their rants are based on response to coronavirus and the restrictions in place because of it. Okay. Um, let me, let me see if I can, um, no, you're, you're a great grass. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, have you seen, okay. Delaware shares a border with Pennsylvania. Yes, it does, right? Yeah, it does. So, yeah. Have, you, have you seen any 
Because Pennsylvania had um, COVID really bad. So did you did you see any bleed over from that? So I thought we would, um, especially up in Newcastle, because it's right there on the border of Philadelphia. But it it it, it didn't happen as m- much as I thought it would. Like I thought, like. Uh, uh, the beach communities would get a higher infection rate because of the ferry coming over from Cape May and people coming in from Jersey. And I thought Newcastle would have a really high rate because, you know, it's right there by Philadelphia. Um, I just didn't see the bleed over that I thought I would see. Uh, but I don't work in a civilian healthcare facility in Northern Delaware. So I didn't always have access to the information except from coworkers and friends that I know that have worked up there, but it just, it just didn't seem as bad as I think it could have been. Um, And I think that's because of, uh, of kind of a coordinated response early on between I know that um, that Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York, and New York and its all of its bordering states kind of came together and made a little pact of how they were going to approach things. So I, I think that that helped us. It provided a little bit of buffer for Delaware, and and that helped us and and prevented it from being worse than it could have been. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. What do you think the lesson of COVID is going to be if not in Delaware? I mean, if not in the country in Delaware? Uh, That health is very important. And it it is the one asset that you have that aside from genetics or a disease you don't have control over like cancer or, you know, a a disease that's not transmittable, you know, a non-transmissible disease. I I think that this teaches us that we are in charge of our health and we're responsible for maintaining our health and it can easily be taken away. Um, I, I hope that this silver lining in this pandemic is I need to, I need to treat myself better. I need to take better care of myself because if I have a strong immune system, I won't be as adversely impacted by the next virus or if coronavirus resurges or flu or any of those, you know, other seasonal type illnesses that come around, I need to eat a better diet. I need to, to lose weight because it, it, it it affects vasculature. I need to make sure I get out there and do some cardio to improve my lung strength. I, I I need to, (laughs) I need to have insurance or I need to have access to healthcare, whether it's, you know, private healthcare or or insured healthcare, whatever you want to do. That's what I hope the silver lining is that that we need to take better care of ourselves because this is how we stay strong as a community, and this is how we're going to prevent the next virus from taking us down a notch like it did this time. Okay. Okay. Um, I think. Do you have anything you want to add? Do you have anything you want to tell the internet? Anything you want to tell the future? Uh, you know, actually, I, I think that last statement really solidified it. Um, I, you know, uh, America and and humanity goes through cycles of illness, and you know, illness raises up and it tries to knock us down, but we're resilient as a species. And our resilience is one of the things that makes us different from anything else on earth. 
and we're going to rebound and come back from the pandemic stronger than when we went into it. We'll be armed with new knowledge. We'll be armed with better medications and better treatments. We'll be prepared for, uh, with the science that we use to help fight this pandemic, we're going to have better science to help predict and fight the next pandemic. The only thing that we need to do now is take care of our human body systems, you know, make sure that we're running at peak efficiency and we're going to, you know, we're going to be a great society moving forward because that's what we have to do. We have to be resilient. We have to rebound and we have to move on.